How are you, awesome people? Yeah. Well, I'm Jared, and if we're meeting for the first time, uh, I get to uh, wrap this series today that we've been talking about called A Parenting Beyond Your Capacity. Uh, some of you, like Ann and me, at a point in your life where you believe that that probably really is true. Yeah, probably. And probably all of us uh, have felt that as well. But you know, in this series that we have been committed to bringing value to your life, whether you're 13 or 93 years of age or any age in between. And uh, today is no exception to that. Uh, we've made uh, three promises, or at least we've had three goals. And just like the end of any course where you do an end of the course eval, uh, we want you to do an eval today. And you can talk about the instructors. You can do this on your, on your connection card. Uh, you can tell how the instructors did relative to our course goals. And then you can talk about what happened in your life as well. So here we are. To encourage parents as they raise great kids. To educate future parents to parent well. And to equip all of us to serve the kids at Evergreen and beyond. We've addressed five topics in this series. We talked, first of all, about enlarging the circle of relationships in your family. We, we talked about imagining the end for your kids first. We've talked about fighting for the heart and last week and talked about creating a rhythm in your family's life that's productive. And today, I'm going to wrap it up with make it personal. So if you missed any of those, check them out on the podcast, and uh, you'll be able to have gone through the whole course as well. In fact, if you plan to parent, or if you are parenting now with little uh, younger people in your home, uh, you know, if you don't have any other motivation, we've talked with lots of people, literally scores of families in our life of 40 years of ministry, Ann and me, and I will tell you that uh, sometimes when we're talking with a family in pain, if they would have simply known and done the stuff we've talked about these five weeks, they would not be in the pain that they are. So it's a very lowest possible motivation. You may spare yourself a year worth of counseling later in the future. So go ahead, listen to those podcasts. There's some good stuff there. Well, you probably know our core verses by heart. I'm going to ask you to read them out loud with an out loud voice with me until you get to the three little dots. We're going to end with the word children. Here we go. Together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Phew. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The P.S. today is a little bit later in the chapter. Recall the setting. Moses, 120 years of age, been leading these people for a long time. They've been backpacking in an arid wilderness. They've been eating crackers and tepid water to survive. They're about to go into a lush, gorgeous place. He's not going to go in. He's going to die. He knows that in his farewell speech, he then gives them a beautiful promise and a red flag warning. Here it is. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you. Pause for a minute. How likely is it that they're going to make it into this so-called promised land? How likely? Yeah, really certain, like 100%. It's when. It's not if. It's when. You are about to go from the desert 
to lush prosperity. Here you go. When you get there, he says, and now he describes it, a land with large, flourishing cities that you didn't build. Imagine with me for a moment. What's a large city that just evokes positive emotion for you? It may have been a hometown. It may have been someplace that you traveled internationally. If you're a Beaver fan today, it's Corvallis, Oregon. Yeah. What's the city that just draws you? He says, you're going to get the keys to the city. The mayor is going to hand you the key to the city. And this is not some metaphorical like welcome. Literally, the keys to the city. You're going to own this thing. And you're going to move into houses that are filled with all kinds of good things that you didn't provide. We have a friend who's a custom home builder. He built two of the homes in this last year's Street of Dreams on the reserve. And we got to tour while they were being built. And then when they were, it was done, and then tour in the homes after they were finished. And the one of them that we really liked was only $2.1 million. We could really envision ourselves there. But the furnishings would have been an addition, and that was just the tipping point for us. We just, we weren't going to make it there. But imagine, imagine a Street of Dreams home, gorgeously furnished. He says, you're going to walk into these houses, and you're going to live there because they'll be your own. He says, you're going to, you're going to have wells that you didn't dig. You're going to have vineyards and olive groves that you didn't plant. These people have been drinking tepid water in the wilderness at best. Now you're going to have artesian wells that are already there for you. You're going to step off of your front porch, and there's going to be these lush gardens and, uh, and orchards, and you're going to have luxur- luxuries like olive oil, and you're going to have wine and grape juice. And he says, when you eat and you are satisfied, not eat like you've gotten full because you finally had a square meal, but you are so satisfied that you could not you could not contain another drop of luxury. It's that you could, you would say to God, don't bless me with one thing more. I don't think I can handle it. To people 40 years in a desert, the 39-year-olds had never been any place else in their life. To describe this kind of mouth-squirting luxury, this delicious landscape and opportunity. Moses says, that's where you're going. That is the beautiful promise. And I just want to say to some of you today, God's speaking beautiful promises to you. And your life has felt recently more like that wilderness. And you've been surviving on soda crackers and water. And maybe your friendships have looked like that. They've been a little tepid. And maybe that whatever you fill in the blanks feels like a desert time for you. And you love a God, and a God loves you even more that says to you, I have grace for you. I have blessing for you. I have prosperity for you. I am bringing you to a place that is larger and is more lush. That's God's intention for his children. You are an heir of his. That is the beautiful promise. But notice at the hyphen that he now gives us a red flag warning. He says... Then, when you eat and you're satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Our big idea today is, if the goal is to pass on a personal faith to children, 
We should make it our priority to make our faith personal and our relationships intentional. Notice for a minute the outline of Moses' speech there that we just read. He, he wants to emphasize three points, and I'm using the words establishes, challenges, and reminds to, to let us know what he's launching. By the way, it's not in your notes there. You want to jot it down if you want to remember it. But in this speech, Moses first establishes God as the cornerstone of their identity. He wants you to do the same. It really is Jesus first. Second, he challenges them to make their relationship with God the basis for how they live. For example, we say to people, don't say I'm a follower of Jesus, I am a full believer in Jesus, and then treat your sexual life as though you were an agnostic. Don't say I'm a follower of Jesus and then treat your financial dealings as though you were an agnostic. He's saying this, if you choose your identity of God, then let there be implications about that relationship in every area of your life. And his third, his third is to remind them that these things need to be in their hearts if there's any likelihood that they're going to be transferred to the next generation. He's saying it needs to be in you if it's going to be in them. Now Moses knew his audience <laughs> probably better than he wished. He'd been with them a long time. He knew what they had suffered and what they'd endured. He knew what the desert looked like that they were standing on. And he knew that they had never experienced the luxury that they were about to step into. And so he says to them, you're about to migrate now into this promised land of bounty and plenty. And he said, there's going to be so much to fill your life and your time with good things that I have a concern for you. I'm afraid that you might not make good choices. And so he sets them up in this speech to make good choices today that will be patterns that will serve them well when they step into that prosperity. He wants them to make good choices for themselves and for their families and for their entire community. Let me do a Jared paraphrase in 2019 language. I, I think Moses' concern might sound like this. When you achieve the American dream, the opportunities that are available in an urban area, the house with Magnolia Farms hearth and home decor, a full refrigerator and pantry, farm-to-table meals with homebrew, a regular paycheck and a 401k, good schools for your kids, be really, really careful. You are on very thin ice. Because you're going to be tempted to say, I got here on my own. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. I worked hard and I saved well. I took risks. I've lived the American dream. No, he says, be careful not to forget that it was the Lord that brought you here. Yes, pursue your dream. But as you're realizing it, remember who. The Israeli dream was milk, honey, and huge grapes. <laughs> and they knew where they were standing today in an arid desert. The picture on your right is actually today contemporary picture in Israel of 
of a vineyard. And Moses was saying to them, I know where you've come from and I know where you're going. And when you get to that vineyard, you are going to be in greater jeopardy than you have ever been in your life of trusting and following me. Because your prosperity is going to make you less desperate. So he says, when you get into the vineyard, you're going to have to discipline yourself to refocus because you're going to need to remember that your life is about loving God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your strength. And as Jesus added, to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, I want you to get your priorities into your calendar. Ann talked about this with a rhythm. I want you to, as a family, have your morning time and your drive time and your meal time and your bedtime. And I want you to practice these things now in your rhythm of relationship with God so that when you get into the vineyard, you are served well with the practices that you've put into your life. I want to give you a provoking statement. It says, the cost of prosperity is often selling out faith and fellowship. The cost of prosperity is often selling out faith and fellowship. As I wrote those words, I felt them in my heart. I know my own tendencies. You know how it goes. When things are going really, really well, isn't it easy to kind of just kind of let the priorities of pursuing God just kind of slide a little bit. And then you know how the ebb and flow goes in your life. A huge crisis comes your way, and all of a sudden you're interested in God and prayer, right? Absolutely. And you know, your social media, and please pray for us, and we're reporting. And sometimes in great crisis, I find people, and it's just amazing how engaged they are in that moment. And good for you when you're in trouble absolutely pursue God. There's not a problem with that. What Moses is saying is this, you're about to move into a season of prosperity and you're not going to have the gift, the benefit of painful crisis in your life to drive you toward God. You're going to be in the vineyard eating grapes, dreaming about the wine. And you're going to have to remember to put God first in your life. As I was reviewing, I switched over from difficult stories to some of the really positive examples. And Evergreen, you do this so well. If they were in this service, I'd call them out by name. They're not, so I won't. But I remember one couple. They're, they're contemporaries with Ann and me, uh, and they're both still uh, fully employed, and they earn uh, attractive incomes, and they're very engaged with life, and they have, they have some of the empty nest amenities that some people have who have been blessed and are relatively affluent in this culture in which we live, and they have a a place, a second home, a vacation home that they can go to. They have discretionary money that they can travel and those kinds of things. And, and I always wonder about myself and Anne and about our friends, what we'll do when we have prosperity as empty nesters. Because I know that for my generation, boomers, many have sold out their faith and fellowship incrementally over time by practicing less pursuit of God and less pursuit of fellowship with others. And I was just thinking about this particular couple, and I remember a conversation. They've always been faithful and committed and giving, but I remember a conversation that I had a few months ago because I discovered that he, once again, was one of the leaders of a small group in one of our kids' ministries. And so they work one, and they worship one. And so I asked him, how did you get back into kids' ministries? He's just phenomenal with kids. And he told me, he said, very simply, I was talking to the Lord one day, and the Lord said to me, it's time for you to make a fresh, regular commitment to fellowship and service. 
and to put that in your calendar before these other opportunities. That's what you do in the vineyard. When you have other choices, you don't have a compelling circumstantial need, but you say with Moses, I am going to love God with all my heart, soul, and strength, and I'm going to live a life that others can look at, and if they emulate it, probably end up loving and following God as well. Well, that was almost Jared preaching right there. I got to ease up a little bit. You know the American dream? Uh, it was actually a historian, James Adams, uh, who cemented the phrase, the American dream, in the introduction to his book called uh, The Epic of America. Adams wrote, and I quote, the American dream, that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone, with opportunity for each, according to ability and achievement. 1936. 30 years later, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. made allusions to the American dream in his I Have a Dream speech with respect to racial equality. But over the 86 years from James Adams' coining of the phrase to today, while we still believe that the American dream is achievable, we have significantly morphed its definition. Did you notice that Adam's definition was aspirational for all? The American dream today is primarily defined as accumulation for self. And in fact, some of the civil and political debate that's going on today has a lot to do with the shifting of those two great ideas. A 19, uh, 2018 study was of three generations Millennials, Gen X, and Boomers, and the American Dream. And it discovered three things about the three generations. First of all, all three generations believe that the American Dream is achievable today. Secondly, all three generations primarily define it with three factors. Owning a home, being debt-free, and having a comfortable retirement. However, at this point, for the third point, it, the Millennials substantially shift from what they've shared in common with the previous two generations. Millennials add a fourth factor to the American dream. And in fact, it is for your generation, millennials, the most important factor. You still believe you want to attain homeownership, being out of debt, and having a comfortable retirement. But factor number one is purpose in life. And I want to say as an old crusty boomer, I have hope in the future because of that. I'm thrilled with that. And so our question is, in pursuing this dream, what is the passion that your schedule is pursuing? Because we've discovered in this series that there's a, a critical link between your own spiritual growth and development and the possibility of transferring that faith on to the next generations. When it comes to spiritual and moral development, children are constantly watching you with laser-like focus. They will catch your priorities. Their question is, how does mom, how does dad, how do grandparents, how do other significant adults express love for God in their life? 
Where does God fit in their hierarchy of dreams of home ownership being debt-free and having a comfortable retirement? Where is the passion for God demonstrated in that passion for life? If I followed them and their dreams and passions, would I get closer to God as a result? It is a credible question that they're asking. Is loving God and loving others the purpose of your life that they would see if they look, took a look at your calendar and your bank account. I think whatever we hope children to become, we should probably strive to be as well. So uh, if you're a note taker, you'll notice on the screen, here's some ideas, just take a look at them with me. I think that if you want your kid to, for example, make church a priority, then you should go. I hate it when people up front say, turn to somebody and tell them something, but if it's just, you need to do that, you can say, you passed that one, you're here today. <laughs> yeah, good for you. If you want kids to respect leaders, then you probably want to watch your what? Yeah, I think so. If you want to have them to admit their mistakes, they should probably hear you say, I am sorry. If you want them to work hard, then let them see you volunteer. If you want to be generous, then be generous yourself. Tell them about how you give of your time, talent, and energy. Tell them how you learned to be a tither and a generous giver in your church community. Tell them the struggle that that was as you worked your way forward, but the fulfillment of God's blessing in your life to always prosper and bless when we respond to him in obedience in any area of our life. If you want your kids to pursue God, then well, you'll probably want to spend time with God. If you want your kids to be honest, then you'll probably treat others with integrity. As I mentioned, in 40 years of pastoring, congregations and pastors and business owners, we've encountered conservatively scores of families that had the parents chosen to have committed themselves to a life of that kind of modeling may have likely spared themselves some of the painful and difficult crises and issues that they found themselves in. God's path is rarely spectacular or sexy, but it is line upon line, precept upon precept, the old prophet said. It's routine after routine, day after day, a family rhythm. I believe that children need to see you make relational and emotional and spiritual uh, commitments and priorities. If you don't make it personal for yourself, it's very likely that it won't be very personal for them either. And again, good for you. You're here today. So very quickly, how can you make some spiritual deposits and some, or some relational deposits? Well, let me give you just a couple of tips about each of those. First of all, on the spiritual deposit sign, some of you will remember a couple of years ago we did a series, and I don't know what we called it, but we freely drew from and recommended a book called Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. And he talks there about how God has wired us differently and that there's, there's seven or so different ways that we in, as individuals tend to best connect with God. Now, some of you best connect with God in doing what we did here a few minutes ago, using music and using poetry, the lyrics to songs. Some churches use other art forms, including dance or others. 
uh, I'm not quite liberated in those ways. And uh, I wouldn't participate with you in dancing. I would be a distraction for you. So I don't do that. But you understand. And some of you just are so drawn into a, an intimate experience, a wonderful experience with God through the art expressions of music and poetry. It's hard for you to understand that there are other people around you that don't get you at all. That it's a spiritual discipline to come and sing. They do it because the Bible tells us that we are to gather, and part of what we experience as we're to gather is to sing spiritual songs to the Lord. They find other pathways. Now, it doesn't mean that those of us that aren't drawn toward the worship, as we call it, using those art forms, that we have a pass on getting together. No, we have to gather. But it's just a sensitivity and a recognition. For some of you, it is a spiritual discipline to engage God in those ways. It's meaningful and it's faith-filled, but it's not natural. Because for some of you, what's most natural is for you to be a giver. And you find connection with God when you are expressing generosity toward another. For some of you, it's in nature. It's you, God, and the tree. Now, what you can't do is say, it's only me, God, and the tree. That's your God time. You have to put me and others in the mix in the gather time. You understand? But if you connect with God in nature, go out and spend time and take walks and be with him there. Maybe for some of you, it's caring. You're Mother Teresa, you have that gift of caring, and when you are engaged in serving another person, you and Jesus are very present in that experience. Maybe for you, it's silence and meditation. Uh, maybe for some of you, it's simplicity. Far before the book uh, Minimalist was uh, published or the Netflix series on uh, being a minimalist, you were a minimalist. You're the St. Francis people. Well, I hope not exactly, because he went around naked part of the time, which is just not a good thing to do. That will not take you to good places. But having come from a very wealthy family whose father made his money in fine fabrics and clothing, it was quite a statement for St. Francis to say, I am going to live with the least material stuff that I possibly can. He found that a deep expression of worship. Some of you are minimalists by worship. And then finally, there's those of you that are activators, your action, your service. Man, you go for it. We, we read your stuff. We hear your voice. You are shouting for justice and you're engaged. And when you are on a march for justice, you never feel closer to God. Here's the point. Most of us are wired to have two or three of those as major pathways in our life. And here's the assignment for you. Figure that out. And just like a coach would create a workout regimen for the client, create a spiritual progress development regimen for yourself in taking your pathways across God, gather, group, and give and find yourself in a routine and a pattern that works well with how you connect with God. Spiritual deposits. How about just briefly relational pauses? I'll make it easy for you here. And those of you that are filling in some blanks, there's some words there for you. I think to, to make relational deposits, first of all, you can say it with me, be strategic about, about friends, yeah. Uh, parents, I have discovered that you are intensely concerned about your kids' friends, right? And you say amen to that. I'm very interested. Who are your friends? Who are you talking to? Who are their parents? Let me just give you a hint, parents. Some really successful parents, many of you do this. You are as concerned about your friends as you are your kids' friends because your kids are watching your friends. What adults are you dragging into your kids' life is a very responsible adult question. 
And if you ask the question, doing a little life audit about the adults that you've enlarged the circle with, you might go back to that list of seven qualities that we mentioned earlier. Are these people who express generosity? Are these people that model personal time with God? Are these people that have attitudes of respect toward, uh, toward authorities and toward others? Are these people who... Are you intentionally bringing those kinds of friends into your circle? Secondly, to find a community of who? Of parents. Yesterday, the, the hundreds, apparently, of uh, families uh, that we uh, touched at a, a Renko Fest, thousands, I don't know, there were a lot, we made an implicit promise to them. When they took a card and they were invited to bring their kids back in a couple of weeks here, we made an implicit promise by our presence, what we demonstrated. And what we said to them is, we are a great place for your kids. And we also said, and we're a great place for you. It's a place where you can connect. This parent thing can be a lonely thing, but you can find friends in that community here. And then third, to invest in your marriage. Probably if you're a married person, the greatest gift that you can give to your kids is investing in your marriage. Anna and I, I think we've been at this for about 42 years. Do you remember? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we were both there. <laughs> yeah. And as far as we can tell, it's going to work out. Yeah. And uh, we still work at it. Yeah. And you could probably say, well, in addition to your 42 years, you, you, know, you knew each other for 10 years before that. You, you guys probably know each other so well, you don't need to work on it. Give me a stinking break. What world, what planet are you on? So next month, Ann and I are going to a two-day marriage retreat. Do any of you know how much I like retreats? <laughs> we get to sit around a table and gaze into each other's eyes and gaze into other people's eyes and tell them all of our stuff and junk. Oh, it'll be awesome. <laughs> but wait, there's more. We're staying at a foo-foo bed and breakfast. We get to share the John with two or three other couples. Awesome. I am so into this. You say, you crazy man. Why are you advocating for this? Because I love this woman. And I committed to her. And I would rather have more of the better and less of the worse. Hmm? I'm going to a marriage retreat next month because I want our adult kids and our grandkids to watch our life and say, that's maybe a direction we'd like to go. We invest in our marriage because we have a stewardship responsibility to you. It's not to be perfect. We're not, you've discovered. But we will model a commitment of priorities that we hope we could say like the Apostle Paul, if you hang around us and head the direction we're heading, you'll probably end up following Christ. Make a commitment. Make commitments in your life to widen the circle, to think about the friends, to connect with other parents, and to invest in your marriage if you're a marriage person. Well, I have one last P.S. scripture for you today. A wise and inspired man once said, and it's recorded in your Bibles in Proverbs chapter 30, two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me, and give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much in disown you and say, who's the Lord? 
or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Here's Jared's paraphrase in Evergreen 2019 language. Please, God, don't let me be so poor that I run ahead of you and try to make ends meet on my own. And don't let me get so much that I feel self-sufficient. As I pursue the American dream, I don't want to forget my priority commitments. God, gather, group, give. Imagine the powerful impact of a man, a woman, a student who every day does the mundane thing of showing up with some God time day after day, week after week until they burst into a glowing spotlight of faith. Imagine a family that has decided to put into its daily routine some special God times that are age-relative and appropriate around getting up and drive and meal and bed. Imagine the winsome and attractive faith community of people who are growing together in spite of being so diverse in age and ethnicity and experience and profession and political leanings or preferences, committed to growing together in honest communication as they God gather, group, and give. Just imagine. I have a good friend who grew up in Romania. His father was something of, I would call, a modern-day apostle. He was a pastor of a church that raised up and sent out leaders, but also he traveled throughout Romania in encouraging and training other leaders as well as in other Eastern Bloc countries during the Soviet Union that had consolidated those. Uh, he did that at great risk and was frequently arrested, was beaten, as were other family members, including my friend who was then a little kid. Uh, the mom's a brilliant a scientist, PhD in physics and or in chemistry, and uh, did science in Romania and published many, many uh, scientific studies. In finally fear for their lives, the family uh, escaped to Switzerland and then emigrated to Australia and then the United States, where my friend primarily grew up. I knew that his father had died years ago, that his mother passed five or six weeks ago. I was in touch with him recently, and I just asked about his mother's memorial service. I assumed, and he confirmed, that it was at a Romanian-language congregation here in the greater Portland metro area. I asked him what he said in uh, honor of his mom, and he told this story that had happened just a couple of weeks before her death. As he was about to leave, she said to him, a son, as you go today, I want you to drive by the most wealthy place in town. <laughs> he kind of chuckled and he thought to himself, well, like, you know, would that be the U.S. Bank Tower? Would that be uh, Lake Oswego, one of the hedge funds uh, offices? Uh, would that be in the Dunthorpe community on the Willamette River where a lot of trailblazers and others live? Would, where, where's the wealthiest place in town? He said, Mom, where's the wealthiest place in town? She made him think about it. He guessed some more. She said, no. 
Mom, where's the wealthiest place in town? She said, the cemetery. Drive by the cemetery. Hmm. He said, the cemetery. Nobody takes anything to the cemetery. She said, oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. She said, you know, many people, because they are so busy pursuing the small things in life, so that they can finally get around to have a basis to be able to share the big things in life, just end their life having kept all the big things. They take to the cemetery with them their sense of calling and purpose that God made for them, their talents, their abilities, their gifts, their skills, their contributions to the lives of others. The cemetery is the wealthiest place in town because it's where so many people have taken what's really of value in their life. Son, when you leave here, drive past the cemetery. Moses, on the eve of his death, making his farewell speech, says to people, you're about to prosper and you're going to be tempted to forget who brought you here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And as Jesus added the second commandment that's like it, and love your neighbor as yourself. In Moses' farewell speech, he said the negative principle. Do not forget the Lord your God. Would you say those words with me? Do not forget the Lord your God. The one who completely fulfilled the foreshadowing of all that Moses ever was is Jesus. On the eve of his death, at his last meal, he went back to the elements, the basic elements of that meal, the the bread and the wine. He didn't take the well-prepared, he took the bread and the wine. He went back to the basics and he took it and he broke it and he said, whenever you eat the bread, do this in remembrance of me. And whenever you drink the wine, the cup of the new covenant of my blood, drink in remembrance of me. In his farewell speech, he gave us a ritual to remember him. Moses knew that he had no, nothing greater to say than, do not forget the Lord your God. And Jesus knew there was nothing stronger for him to say on the eve of his death than remember me. Would you say the words together with me? Remember Jesus. Together, Remember Jesus. Jesus. Ushers are going to come, and in a moment they're going to start passing trays. Uh, You may be a guest with us today, and we want you to know what we're going to be doing, and we want to invite you to participate. Uh, There's really only one one person or one group of people who should not participate today, and those of you who are passionate followers of Jesus who are choosing to live outside of fellowship with someone that you're broken in relationship with and and you are choosing not to move toward reconciliation in your heart. 
those of us that are followers of Christ that are wrong with others and we are not, we're not going to do anything about that, uh, you shouldn't receive today. The Bible's clear about that. Everybody else is welcome to participate. That was kind of scary and ominous, wasn't it? Some of you are going to say, I can participate, but I'm not sure that I want to. It's going to be okay. It really is. What we're going to do today is, in just a moment before you pass them on down, is that you're going to reach in and take out a cracker. It's a gluten-free cracker, and you're going to, with a tray right there, you're going to eat the cracker, and then there's some juice, some grape juice. You can drink that. And what we're going to do is we're going to remember Jesus. Would you say those words with me again? Remember Jesus. And as you remember Jesus, I'm going to ask you to think of two questions. Why? Why should you remember Jesus? And the second question is what? What does remembering Jesus suggest I should probably do? Marley and the band are going to introduce to us a beautiful song about remembering. Father, we receive the gift of your son Jesus who died for our sins and rose for our forgiveness in life. We remember Jesus, as we eat the bread and drink the cup. Amen. Amen.